0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we long for your return. We long for you to set the world right, to bring justice, peace, freedom from sin and sorrow. Would you teach us to long for that day evermore, to live for that day, to press on and lean into the hope that we have in you? We thank you that at the end of the day, we do have hope, hope for resurrection, hope for restoration, hope for eternal perfection with you and with one another by your grace and by your glory. We ask you to teach us from your word to the Philippians this morning. Shape us through Paul's instructions to that church. Form us as your people, as citizens of this heavenly kingdom. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. And I want to start by reminding you of the social and political landscape within which these early Christians lived. A hundred years before Paul planted the church in Philippi, Caesar Augustus gave the city an incredible honor by establishing it as a Roman colony. Located along a major trade route connecting Europe to Asia, Philippi wasn't large, but it was strategically important. And under Caesar Augustus' patronage, it became self-consciously Roman. The people of Philippi were granted official citizenship of the city of Rome, and as a result, they didn't pay any taxes. In return, they were loyal, extremely loyal. The cult of the emperor flourished in Philippi, meaning that Caesar was worshiped as one of the gods. The Philippians didn't live in Rome, But they did everything they could to live like Romans and to look like Romans because they were citizens of that august city. In his letter to the fledgling church in Philippi, Paul uses a technical term that occurs nowhere else in his other letters. It turns up in chapter 1 and then again in our reading this morning in Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, he writes. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As one commentator writes, citizenship is a term whose explosive theological and political potency in this context are hard to exaggerate. Paul deploys it as a stark reminder of what is at stake when it comes to following Jesus. And he refers specifically to Jesus as Savior and Lord because both of these terms were widely applied to Caesar at that time. For the pagan citizens of Philippi, Caesar was Savior and Lord because they were citizens of Rome. The Christians of Philippi, however, who called on Jesus as Savior and Lord were citizens of heaven. Now, how do you learn to live like a citizen of heaven when your home address is Philippi? How do you learn to live like a citizen of heaven when your home address is Raleigh, North Carolina? In some ways, the whole letter to the Philippians is about this question. And our passage for today gives us an opportunity to take a closer look at several practices central to living as citizens of heaven even while we are residents of Raleigh. And the first practice is this. It's take hold and press on. Take hold and press on. So our reading begins in chapter 3, verse 12. And it's on page 981 in the Red Bibles, if you're not there already. Paul is in mid-thought. He's been talking about resurrection and about righteousness. Righteousness. The righteousness and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the righteousness and resurrection promised to those who trust in Jesus for salvation. And so he says this, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice the repetition of the phrase, make it my own. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own. Now, Paul's still talking about righteousness and resurrection and all that comes with our salvation in Jesus. He hasn't yet made it his own, he says, because he's still running the race of this life. He won't ultimately receive the salvation he longs for until Jesus returns. But he's not simply waiting idly for that day to come. He's pressing on to make it his own here and now, looking to live a life that's worthy of that salvation. At the same time, Paul is perfectly clear that he's not trying to earn something. As he says in verse 12, he's doing this because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Jesus has already taken hold of him, given him the gift of salvation, and invited him into a life of righteousness. Paul's approach to the Christian life is captured in another verb that's repeated twice in this little paragraph. He says in verse 12, I press on to make it my own. And then in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That verb, to press on, it was often used in in the context of athletics. It means to run after or to aggressively pursue something. And the word for prize here, it it could just as as easily have been translated for our day as gold medal. Paul is comparing the way we are to approach the Christian life to the way in which an athlete prepared for the ancient Olympic Games. My wife, Alicia, works part-time for a man, a dear friend of ours, who is a chaplain to elite athletes. And this weekend, she is in southern Virginia, helping to host a retreat for a small group of these athletes and some chaplains. As she has been introduced to the world of elite athletics over this past year, one of the things that we've learned about is the absolute single-mindedness with which these men and women live their lives. Everything in their lives is built around the goal of peak performance. For some of these athletes, that quite literally boils down to just a few days every four years at the Olympics. For others, it is a grueling 162-game Major League Baseball season. Regardless of the sport, these men and women structure every minute every meal, every mile on the track or in the pool, and every training session in order to maximize their ability and lead them to victory. That's how Paul approaches the Christian life. As he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm afraid that most of us would have to admit that our hopes and our goals are a little bit more terrestrial. We want to reach a certain level professionally. We want to earn enough to retire comfortably. We want our family members just to be stable and happy. None of these is wrong, but none of these is worth living for. Paul's encouragement to press on toward our he- heavenly home, it relativizes all of our other goals and then it redefines them. He forces us to ask ourselves, how should I rethink the value of my 401k in light of my eternal salvation? How does the hope of heaven reshape the way I think about the happiness of my children? How might professional success impact my pursuit of righteousness? It's fascinating to me that when Paul describes pressing on, he mentions the importance of forgetting what lies behind. Now, elite athletes are always being judged by other people on their most recent performance. But the athletes themselves, they are always focused on the next competition. Their fans and their detractors are talking about what happened while they're working toward what's next. If their most recent efforts resulted in failure, they'll be tempted to despair, they'll be driven by fear. If their most recent efforts led to victory, then they might be tempted to take it easy in training. In order to keep competing, they have to forget the past and focus on the future. Some of us Some of us are constrained in our Christian lives by the failures of the past. We've done so much wrong, failed God so often that our lives are clouded by shame. Others of us have this sense that that all the Christian life requires is a one-time commitment of faith, and the rest of life is basically just waiting to use our salvation ticket when we appear before the pearly gates. Both kinds of people are tethered to the past in an unhealthy way. Bogged down in shame or buoyed by past success? And to both, Paul says, forget about the past. Lean forward to the finish line. Live your life in pursuit of Jesus. When a sprinter competes, he runs all the way through the finish line. Leaning forward at the end, never holding back, That's how Paul encourages us to live our lives as citizens of heaven. Press on. That's the first thing we do as citizens of heaven. And the second is this, we are to practice the art of imitation. Practice the art of imitation. During the uh, 2021-2022 English soccer season, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was the highest paid player at Arsenal Football Club. A gifted striker, he could find the corner of the net from just about anywhere. But there was a problem. Aubameyang played fast and loose with the team rules. He missed training sessions. He traveled without permission. A few years older than most of his teammates, Aubameyang was meant to be the leader of the team. He was meant to be a role model. But he wasn't acting like it. And this left the manager of the club, Mikel Arteta, with a tough decision. Discipline his superstar and risk alienating him or try to keep him happy and hope the other guys don't follow his example. Arteta's decision cost him the support of the team's fans and it nearly cost him his job because not only did he discipline Obama Yang, he sold him to another team. This left Arsenal without a number one striker and without a captain in the middle of the worst season in recent memory. What turned out to be the best decision of Arteta's career. As the season wore on, younger players began to step up. They rallied around each other. They played unevenly and sometimes ineffectively, but they all grew up. Several of them stepped into key new leadership roles, setting an example and pulling the others along with them. It was clear to those who are watching, and yes, I was one of them, that something was happening in North London. Well, this year, Arsenal is the youngest team in English soccer, and they're at the top of the league. Their captain is a 23-year-old Norwegian international. And here's the point. The point is that role models matter. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was the best player on the team, but he was holding everyone back because he was a bad example. So Arteta replaced him. Role models matter. And Paul understood this so well. Because of this, after urging his friends in Philippi to press on toward the goal of life with Jesus, he said to to them in verse 17, he said, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things." In the Christian life, it's strange enough and it's hard enough that we are not going to figure it out on our own. We need models to watch and to learn from, and we need to be careful who we choose. Paul says that there are many who started out well but then lost sight of the goal, succumbed to temptation, and embraced the God of their bellies, meaning they decided that earthly pleasure was better than eternal joy. We might think of these As former athletes, they've given up on training, lost sight of the future, stopped leaning in. Don't follow them, Paul says. Instead, find godly role models, old or young, and watch them closely, learning Christ by shadowing them. And notice Paul's boldness here. He makes no bones about telling the Philippians to follow his example. He wants them not just to do as he says, but to do as he does. A few of us are willing to be this bold. We don't want the accountability or the scrutiny of being a role model, but Paul takes it on willingly, and so should we. Whether you're at home raising kids or you're out all day running a business, you, each one of you is in a position of influence. You have been uniquely placed to set an example for those around you. I want to encourage you to embrace that responsibility. And remember, as you do, a role model is not someone who has it all together. A role model is someone who knows that they don't have it all together and is hungry to grow. A role model is anyone who's just a few steps ahead of you, leaning forward toward the goal of eternal life with Jesus. If we want to learn to live as citizens of heavens, we must take hold of the gift of salvation and press on with the single-minded focus of an athlete. We must also learn the art of imitation, finding role models and becoming role models for those around us. Now, there's one more practice that shapes our citizenship, and it comes in the opening verses of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The way in which the ESV breaks up these paragraphs is unhelpful. Verses 1 through 3 belong together because standing firm... It requires that we lock arms, even when we don't get along. Abby D'Agostino was a seven-time NCAA champion in cross-country and track. And in 2016, she represented the United States in the Rio Olympics in the women's 5,000-meter race. During her qualifying heat, Abby's Olympic dream literally came crashing to the ground. Nikki Hamlin, a runner from New Zealand, stumbled directly in front of her. And as she was going down, Abby's legs got tangled in hers, and she too went down, tearing her ACL as she fell. Now, what happened next, you may remember, it became one of the defining moments of the 2016 Olympic Games. Abby, unaware of the extent of her injury, got quickly to her feet. But instead of trying to rejoin the race, she bent over Nikki Hamlin to check on her. Elite athletes don't do this. By turning back to help her fellow competitor, she abandoned any hope of qualifying for the final. But as she tried to help Nikki to her feet, Abby collapsed in pain. This time, Nikki bent down and helped her get off the ground. The two women locked arms, limped forward together, encouraging one another, and both eventually finished the race. These two elite athletes were competitors. They weren't meant to help each other. They should have been bitter and angry about what had happened. But they locked arms and they limped forward. And we need to do the same. The Christian life is hard. Pursuing the prize of our upward call in Jesus Christ is just as demanding as competing in the Olympics. We need each other in this pursuit. Now, we aren't competitors like those two ladies were. We're teammates in an endurance sport. And because of this, we cannot waste time or energy by refusing to get along with each other. And that's why Paul publicly calls out these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, in verse 2. And he tells them basically, y'all need to stop bickering and get along. Too often, too often I hear of conflict within our community leading to ruptured friendships. Or I learned that someone has been rude, dismissive or arrogant to another member of the church and refused to apologize. Instead of seeking to repair divisions or solve disagreements, though, most people do one of three things: They pretend it never happened and default to a superficial relationship. Or, they gossip about each other with friends and treat each other coldly from a distance. Or they engage directly but in such an unhealthy way that the relationship falls apart and one of the two decides to leave the church. These internal conflicts, I think they probably grieve me more than just about anything else. If we want to finish this race together, we have got to grow up in how we handle conflict with one another. And the key to growing up in conflict is humility. This long section of the letter on the Christian life emerged out of Paul's reflection on the humility of Jesus in chapter 2 and his challenge for us to live with the same kind of humility. Sometimes, humility means confessing your thoughtless arrogance toward another person and apologizing sometimes humility means telling another person they've hurt you and asking for an apology sometimes humility means inviting a third party to get involved as paul did with these women to help you sort out your differences several months ago our bishop called me and much to my surprise he began the conversation by saying hey I'm calling because I need to apologize to you. It was a small matter, but one that he felt compelled to address. Last week, I found myself on the other side of the equation, and I had to call our bishop and say, hey, I'm calling because I need to apologize to you. That's what the gospel requires of us. It's hard, it's humbling, but it's necessary because, as Paul says in verse 3, our names are written side by side in the book of life. The fellowship that we share, as fragile and difficult as it can be, it's a miracle of God's grace. And the only way we will, we will bear God's grace to the world as citizens of heaven is by learning to lock arms, overcoming our grievances with each other, resolving our conflicts, and thereby standing firm, pressing in, and leaning forward together. So we began with the question, how do we live as citizens of heaven while being residents of Raleigh? Paul supplies us with a threefold answer in this little section of his letter to the Philippians. We do so by taking hold of God's grace and pressing on to our ultimate redemption with the single-minded focus of elite athletes refusing to be distracted. We do so by finding godly role models and endeavoring to become godly role models for each other. And we do so by learning to lock arms so as to stand firm, overcoming conflict through the grace of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, give us strength to press on, to take hold of the prize of the upward call of life in Jesus. Lord, give us courage to be the godly role models those around us need, and the humility to seek out godly role models for ourselves. May we learn to practice the art of imitation. And Lord, as we do these things, would you lead us to lock arms with one another, in order to stand firm by dealing with the conflict that comes so naturally and easily in the midst of life together, dealing with it with humility, persistence, patience, and grace, that we might bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.